Okay, so on a scale of one to ten, uh, one being utterly impossible, ten being uh, Vivek was right all along. What's the likelihood that the Kansas City Chiefs uh, win the Super Bowl in a very controversial fashion, followed quickly by Taylor Swift unfurling a Biden 2024 flag uh, while also accepting a proposal uh, on the field from Travis Kelsey? Do you want like a percentage? (laughs) (laughs) I said one to ten. Oh, one to ten. Uh, all of those things happening at the same time, uh, in that order, I think is a one. Um, you know, it's funny. I had never, uh, I, I, I know it's just as cool now to, to point out, you don't give a crap about Taylor Swift as it is to point out how much you worship her, but I had never really concerned myself. You might be surprised to hear with her social life until, um, until very recently, like a day or two ago, I found myself scrolling through one of these content mill pages about her dating history um because i heard that it was you know long and distinguished and i i think like you know a year she's dated a lot of famous dudes i think a year was the outside like relationship length that was the outlier more often you'd see a lot of like january 2013 to march 2013 you know or or november 2015 to february 2016 you know so i think the if i'm vegas i do not see a a proposal coming and if i do see a if, if there is a proposal then um i have to start thinking that a new clock is ticking for the end of that uh engagement so i mean i'm just going by past history i don't i don't pretend to know what's in her heart or you know, I don't know any of the many esoteric arguments that the Swifties have for why maybe uh, Kelsey's the one and this time it's different. But I'm just saying, if you go by a past performance, that is not where this is headed. This is headed towards, you know, a breakup song a year from now on her next record that, you know, gets a gajillion downloads. Yeah, uh, I, I, I got to disagree with you there, but I'll, but I'll let John respond first. <laughs> Um, I think that the, look, I mean, obviously, obviously Taylor Swift has, has gotten involved in, uh, races before, uh, you know, I think the first one was the March of Blackburn's first Senate campaign when, um, you know, Taylor and Tay Tay endorsed, uh, uh, you know, former Democratic governor, Phil Bredesen and Marsha went on the win by like eight or nine points, um, I don't, I mean, the, the weirdness of like the obsession, the obsession on the political right right now with Taylor Swift, like I, I legitimately just can't under, it's like a really bizarre thing to me. Um, you know, Travis Kelsey and her seem to like each other. I mean, and he seems willing to accept the, uh, you know, the Prince Philip role to her, you know, her being the queen. Um, you know, <laughs> they seem they seem happy enough, so good for them. I, I thought at the beginning of it all, right, that it was sort of a, mutually you know uh attention diversifying thing right that you know travis kelsey is able to break out of just being you know one of the you know, five or six greatest tight ends ever you know taylor swift you know gets into sort of you know obviously uh you know the biggest entertainment spectacle in america if you look at you know the top you know most watch events uh but they seem to genuinely like each other um and i think that that's great uh you know ross Dalvin had a a piece about this a week or two, two ago that I thought made a lot of sense. 
Look, I, I, I think it would be, I mean, I guess it's sort of depend. I don't think it's going to happen, but I think it's also, I mean, if they win the Super Bowl, like it would be kind of a, kind of a mean thing to do. It'd be like, you know, your, your, your boyfriend has just, you know, reached the, the pinnacle of success and, yeah. um, and to basically go out there and make it about something else as opposed to, you know, winning a Super Bowl. Like I, I just, I find it kind of really, really implausible. If I mean, if you're if you're Roger Goodell, you're now regretting that you uh, kept the that you moved the Pro Bowl or the quote, quote unquote Pro Bowl games to when you did. Because imagine if the there was a week from now a Pro Bowl game that suddenly could be become the most watched exhibition game of all time with the rumor that that would happen. Anyway, uh, I, I have everyone else has spent too much time on this, so I don't really want to spend more time on it. I, I agree with you about the insightfulness of the Ross Douthat column because it's uh, uh, he points out that this really is there's literally memes about this uh, that are uh, th that are things that conservatives should like and the idea that you know uh, her she's going to have any kind of effect I think on on driving significant numbers uh, toward the Joe Biden camp is just absurd. What I do think is that there's this fascinating thing that's going on uh on the in the in the kind of sports taking over all media front and we saw that news that surprise news uh they kept it under wraps uh that warner brothers disney and fox are going to join together uh for some kind of streaming platform uh, not including nbc cbs amazon that kind of thing that they're kind of sectioning it off uh, i don't know what that's going to look like or what that is going to be like in practice in terms of the way uh, that they stand their individual deals together uh, in some kind of fashion. But I think that one of the things that's happened is that you finally, you, you have the total dominance of the NFL as appointment viewing over all other things. And we've, I think mentioned it on this podcast before that if you look back at the top 100 watched uh, events, uh, uh, you know, televised events in the past year uh, of the top 100, uh, the only things that got in there that weren't football were award shows and uh, election night coverage. And that's because there's just nothing that's appointment viewing anymore. Um, something comes out, people stream it when they can, they stream it when they want to, they stream it whenever it's recommended. But you just don't have these gigantic numbers like you used to have for something like Game of Thrones or, or things of that nature. And so now by adding Taylor into the mix, you've created something that is appointment viewing from my perspective, not just from the perspective of normal football fans, which, by the way, the number the number one thing that women are fans of in all of sport in America is the NFL. It's not even close. The, I mean, it, it dwarfs everything else. I made the point in a spectator piece uh, that uh, people can find at the site today that if you combined the championship numbers of all viewers for all other professional sport over the last year, it still wouldn't add up to the number of women who watched the last Super Bowl. So, like that, it, that's how big of a lead they have. Watched is a strong word. Well, no, I mean they watch it for in the, the room. Too. In yeah. the room for it. <laughs> so, but here's the thing. Here's the thing that I would just point out. What you didn't have was interest in this that kind of cut across the normal boundaries of of the media landscape into a space that the NFL hasn't really occupied since maybe like the Deion Sanders era or something along those lines where you you have a uh, a, a level of attention being paid 
from uh, from other aspects of media that is fascinating. This point is made in this Ringer piece, which I encourage everyone uh, to read. It's written by uh, uh, Nora Princiati. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. Uh, that points out that in a year in which all we've heard about is media uh, uh, getting cut off at the knees and, and shuttering shops, multiple verticals were added across places like New York Mag's The Cut, just devoted to uh, following wives and girlfriends of NFL players. We are firmly in the WAG era uh, in a total throwback to uh, to Victoria Beckham and that kind of stuff uh, in a way that is absolutely- or Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe. I mean, and, and, and one way you can tell this is, and she points this out in her piece, and it's, it's such a good point, is how the fashion trends have changed. There, have, have you heard the phrase yet, game day couture? Because <laughs> you will. No. <laughs> that that is it is you know uh, specialized, bespoke, like uh, fashionable wear for women who want who like go to glam squad before the games, uh, and it's it's wag fashion, it's real housewives like, uh, and there's all sorts of internal drama that you can follow there, just between who's cheating on who with another player and and the who has beef with the other person from Instagram likes. Uh, and it it, hope, it opens up a whole new world for the NFL as appointment viewing. I mean, my yeah. game day picture probably leans more towards um, you know the the mid stage era of Bill Belichick with the you know the cleaning out my garage look. Um, but uh, taking yeah, it's the a, perfectly good sweatshirt and cutting it off not not at the sleeve at the top of the sleeves, but just like midway. <laughs> might get caught in something. You know, if you're, you're, you're using your jigsaw, you don't want to you don't want to create the risk. <laughs> Um, uh, well, let me let me just say one one thing of substance. Sure. I also I, this is a longer conversation as a lot of these things are, but like th there's one thing that the NFL and Taylor Swift have in common, sort of structurally in our culture, is that that we, we've we've read you know trend pieces for 20 years now that monoculture, American monoculture, is dead. What you just talked about, streaming, is a part of it. There's a million other things. There's a bunch of tiny little microcultures, the internet, all all that stuff. There's there's no three networks and you're watching one of one of those three channels at all times kind of thing. And in that world, Taylor Swift and the NFL are these little islands of monoculture that have massive yep. following. And that is that is interesting in its own right, but it also creates a lot of pathologies. And we're seeing the interaction of those pathologies. People lost their minds when the NFL waded into Black Lives Matter. And the way that Goodell, who I'm not you know, a fan of, like everybody else in, in America, the way that Goodell handled that 2020 era, you know, to a certain extent reflected the fact that the NFL was too big to fail, right? Yeah. It didn't, it was not fully captured by that moment. It was partially captured by that moment. But the NFL is so big, its fan base is so polyglot that um you know, it it, it 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 plays by a special set of rules. Taylor Swift also has, obviously, her own pathologies. The best example of this is a thing that happened, a 5,000-word piece in the New York Times from an editor at the New York Times, just sort of a free-form jazz odyssey, imagining that Taylor Swift is secretly queer and reading Straussian sort of, you know, esoteric meanings into her life and minute choices uh, that telegraph that she's secretly queer. And immediately what I thought without weighing in on any of the substances is exactly this. She, Taylor Swift is beloved by tens of millions of woke lib women. And because that of that fact, 
they must read these things into her because mm-hmm. it's not safe to like her if she's just a white girl who started as a country star who sings about white girl shit. It's, <laughs> it's not politically it's not politically acceptable to be as obsessed with her as they are. So they must create this esotericism around it. And so that's the thing that I think they have in common. They're so big. They're these islands of monoculture in a world that doesn't have it anymore. They're consensus figures in a world that doesn't have it anymore. And that creates both this too big to fail thing, but also this weird pathological behavior around them. I think I think that's a fantastic point and uh, worthy of another five thousand word jazz odyssey, but but a better <laughs> one than that. Uh, but but one last thing before one last point before we leave, the thing that actually I first the moment when I first recognized this was actually in Pittsburgh. I was at a Steelers game this year with a friend of mine. Uh, Steelers Packers it was a great game, and I'm standing with a group of people like all waiting in line at like a beer and hot dog station and they are they are all dressed uh i am i am perhaps the the least steelers fan dressed like person like i had a black hoodie and a i uh, i have a steelers like yellow and uh uh patterned like argyle pattern like scarf uh and i'm standing there with you know people who are all wearing jerseys uh, uh in various uh black white or camo prints and as we're standing there, this group of women come by who like it, it, it's like they walked out of a different world. All of they're all glammed up. They all have tons of makeup on. They're all they've all got their hair done. They've got uh, and they're wearing clearly like bespoke fashion, like designer sort of things, but with Steeler logo patterns and players names and, you know, uh, different things printed on them. Uh, and and showing way more skin than what you should be showing, given the amount of of uh, given the temperature of the day, and the woman who was in front of me, I was like, you know, I was like, who are they? And she says, oh, um, that that's the you know that those are the wives, you know. And then I notice, I was like, are those the special team wives? Because like one of them had like a kicker's name and one of them had the long snapper's name, which is not like you never see someone with the long snapper's name. No, you have to get that jersey made custom. Exactly. Well, yeah, but it's like, but it's not just a custom jersey. It's like a custom jacket. Like someone got, you know, from some designer and I'm sure it's probably, you know, Jushik's wife or whoever did that, that white bodysuit thing because it's similar in style. But it was like, I was like, I've never seen anything like this before. Uh, And, uh, and to me, like that's the interesting. We're gonna see a war of escalation there as other people try to imitate. You know, Taylor going from like a little beanie and a little ring and a little bracelet to like that huge jacket with the numbers in place and all over it and everything like that. It's it is a, it is going to be fascinating. Designed by Juicek's Juicek's wife. Do you did you know that little detail? Yes, yes, Juicek's wife. Yeah. yeah. So I, it's, believe it, it's, I believe it's Juicek. I think it's Juicek. Juicek. Uh, you guys are, uh, you, are too, you, too coastal you, to understand the. We uh, are too coastal to understand. Yeah. That. <laughs> so, but let, let me let, let me posit an alternate theory of the case, Ben. Going back to your original question, I, I think what people are overlooking at all of this is a, a, an alternate ending to the Super Bowl, where um, you know that. Uh, uh, Christian McCaffrey, you know, the who who may actually be the best player in the yes. game. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. In a game of legitimately with a lot of stars, um, uh, somehow you know wins at the end. 
and a, a former Miss Universe who happens to be his fiance, who was a Miss Universe when Donald Trump, uh, you know, owned the uh, the organization. Maybe she puts on, you know, a uh, 40, you know, 49ers colored hat that's, you know, is make America great again. We, 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 we can't know. <laughs> I think I think that that is uh, look, you know, for the sake for the sake of the future that I placed before this season began, I hope you are 100 percent correct. <laughs> so this well, is maybe gonna... Lee Harvey Purdy is going to is going to have a, a, a moment of a shock the world moment at the end of it. Exactly. Uh, Gentlemen, this is Thunderdome. We did take a week off uh, last week, uh, and I want to give just a little bit of housekeeping for our listeners, which is that we we are going to keep doing Thunderdome, but we'll probably shift it to doing it, uh, you know, every other week or something like that, simply because the amount of news related to this election uh, is probably going to drop off a little bit. We'll do it as as events uh, warrant, uh, and those events may be more lawfare, as we will discuss today. They may be more related to the general state of the election, meaning, you know, Senate races, House races, you know, things that, you know, of that nature that might have interesting developments and things like that. But one thing that I just want to be clear about is, uh, you know, we, we're not going to force feed the idea that there's, uh, you know, some uh, outsized path for Nikki Haley to come make amount some incredible comeback. We're not going to, you know, engage in the kind of speculation uh, unwarranted speculation in my book that says that, you know, Michelle Obama is going to descend from the mountaintop to rescue uh, Democrats from Joe Biden, uh, as some people have been floating lately. Uh, that's we can leave that to other less less serious podcasts where they don't talk about the important things like Taylor Swift. So um, I I know that I think, by the way, I think, by the way, Haley does have a path, but none of the above has to get out of the race. It has to consolidate. <laughs> Yeah, too soon. Oh no, that is that is that is cruel. But but it's true. None of the above. Just just a killer in terms of sucking up that Nikki Haley energy. Um, so she I, should I, promise none of the above a cabinet spot and do it that. <laughs> well, make none. Make none of the above her running mate. That, I mean, yeah. you know, or actually volunteer to be none of the above's running mate. That would be even better. <laughs> I, I think none of the above might actually have a good shot this cycle. Yeah, it's pretty much, I mean, none of the above really where the American people are at. Understanding the zeitgeist of the moment, you know, really, uh, it's none of the above. Just speaking directly to the people and getting around the fake that, news media. That's the, that's the Australian system, right? The Australian ballot is mandatory. So you have to vote in Australia. At least that's the way it used to be. I'm not sure if it's still is. You have to vote, but none of the above is a choice. And, you know, I never used to be a fan of that system. But you know what? We're kind of in a, in a moment where I, I I could dig a system like that. I would absolutely stand in line to do none of the above. Yes. Uh, so I, I have been forced, gentlemen, for the last two hours, roughly, to sit in a uh, van uh, by dint of my employment at Fox News uh, and wait to comment on a Supreme Court case that I was listening to, uh, but never got to comment on because they kept people going for as long as they did. Um, it, it actually was a really fascinating discussion uh, among the justices who were obviously weighing this Colorado case that removes Donald Trump from the ballot uh, in that state, has enormous implications in terms of what other states might do uh, and lessons from it. But what was really interesting to me, besides the fact that Every justice seemed negative. Every question seemed negative uh, toward the Colorado case uh, in some form and in varying degrees. Uh, the And I do uh, want to roll out one particular comment that Alito made later, but 
it, what was so funny to me about it is it's kind of like getting to listen to a bunch of people nerd out about something they haven't been able to talk about since college because this, this is such an esoteric case and and relies on so many uh you know very unique constitutional questions that it, it really was like you know just coming across a bunch of people who all have opinions about one specific thing that they haven't been able to like roll out and use for 20 odd years uh and and that was very it was i was entertained which i am not normally by uh by supreme court arguments i don't know if you had any chance to listen to any of this uh but just so you know the media is a, in agreement with me on this front politico uh has several uh kind of sad trombone headlines of justices appear hostile to trump disqualification efforts yeah you know, some of the you can actually kind of tell in parts of their pieces which things they pre-wrote and which they then accidentally left in. There's a one of the pieces that they put up said, uh, you know, this this is going to be another sign of the partisanship of the court and the partisan divides that are there. And then the very next sentence uh, in a new paragraph is uh, it was surprising to hear some of the negative questions directed from Democratic appointed, appointed just, justices on the court. So anyway, what, what do you all think about this? Uh, Dan, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I didn't listen to the orals I was working this morning, but I, I have read the paper on which the whole disqualification theory relies. It's kind of an ingenious, well-researched, serious piece of scholarship that I think is ultimately just obviously wrong, which is a strange thing to say. And, you know, preface, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. Um, I, I do think I'm probably as <laughs> well-read in the Constitution as the average uh, non-constitutional lawyer, probably better better than the average one. But, you know, the to me, without getting into all the esoteric questions, like is the president an officer of, you know, of, of the federal government for the purposes of these cases? You know, the, the central question is essentially, you know, yes, the 14th Amendment, the, 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 there's a clause in the 14th Amendment that allows the disqualification of, of candidates who have uh, engaged in insurrection against the government. The whole ballgame is, what constitutes a kind of due process for determining whether they've engaged in insurrection. And the, the sort of ingenious original contribution of the theory is that uh, any any officer, any constitutionally sworn officer like an election clerk in, uh, in, in, in a state like Colorado, like a like a secretary of state, like a like a, a, a an elected clerk, um, they can make those determinations based on the facts they have available to them. I think that's just obviously wrong because there's a fairly robustly defined standard of what counts as due process when you're taking people's rights away. And, you know, a clerk said so is not is not really sufficient to that. I mean, I think if if Donald Trump had a conviction on, on the books for a crime that was even in the neighborhood of insurrection, I don't think it would have to be insurrection according to Hoyle. Wouldn't have to be called insurrection. Would he wouldn't have to be prosecuted under that statute, but uh, you know, crimes in the neighborhood of it. Then I think they'd be on much firmer constitutional ground. I think the fact of the matter is, it's a bad case. You know, rooted in some ingenious legal theorizing, but ultimately unpersuasive. And I think uh, he'll be on the Colorado ballot. And I think the decision will be something like seven to two. I mean, that's just my gut. Um, and it comports with some of the, you know, some of the actual constitutional lawyers I've asked about this. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think they have much of a, I don't think they have much of a case. And the thing I thought about, you know, in the hearing of this case, all the, you know, the, the huffing and puffing from people, I saw someone note like, oh, you know, Clarence Thomas is, is sat on the case 
sat on Bush v. Gore and voted with with Bush in the majority. And it's it's despicable. It's disgusting that he's asking questions in this case. Only justice on the on the court today, by the way, who sat in Bush v. Gore. Um, but I, what what it got me thinking about was, and I'd be curious to hear your answer at the at the end of your of your thoughts on this, John and Ben. But you know, how many Trump voters are on the Supreme Court? Like not just inclined to vote for Trump, because I think like with a guy like Roberts, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't vote on purpose. Right. But like how many of those justices voted for Trump? Three. I would say I'd set the over under at three. That's probably a good line. Yeah. Uh, what, John, what are your thoughts on the case? Yeah. So, so similar to Dan, you know, I wasn't, I, I tried to follow a little bit on Twitter on, you know, with Ed Whalen's, uh, um, you know, feed that he was sort of live tweeting. Um, I, I don't, and we've, we've had this discussion before, I, I think in the context of which, you know, the, the insurrection stuff was put into the constitution. Obviously we had just come out of something where it was like crystal clear, like, right. That there was people who, you know, purported their States to leave the union, which we disagreed that they had, but right. And we had a whole war in which people wore uniforms and stuff. It was pretty easy to tell, you know, they had you know, raised arms. I think you know, I, I think it's one of those things where we, I think we can all stipulate and should all stipulate that January 6th was really, really bad and bad stuff happened. And, you know, Donald Trump did not cover himself in glory. You know, I think people I think people for the most part, I'd say well-meaning people uh, can disagree on you know, the, the, the badness of those actions. But I think it's one of those things where it's uh, it, it's hard to say that it's it, it's in like maybe in like a really light shade of gray area where I think that if you look at what the court, you know, the Roberts court, I, I think I feel like we kind of live probably a little bit more in the Thomas court now, but in the Roberts court, I mean, there are so many ways for them to, to get out of this without having to really sort of take a side in a, in a place where, again, I think that this is probably even like uh, some of the, some of the coverage this morning was that, you know, that, Republicans have obviously been very engaged with, you know, amicus briefs and, and things of that nature. But, you know, Democratic members of Congress haven't, you know, Biden, you know, made a comment you know, at the end of last year about like, oh, you know, that seems pretty clear to me. But, you know, that's for the court to decide that, that they've it's not like that they've put a whole lot of eggs into this basket. And I think for like probably because it's not worth stirring that hornet's nest, you know, you could hope against hope that it's for, you know, the health of the republic to, you know, not basically try to use something that's kind of borderline to disqualify your, your, your primary opponent. But for something like this, look, I think it, the, if there, if there's ambiguity, there's an easy way to decide how people feel and that's to have an election. And yeah. you know, that's what's, that's, that's what's going to happen. That's how I felt with the first impeachment that it was so, something that were, I don't think it was nearly as well-founded, but you know, I think people you know could have legitimate concerns about how the, the conduct was, but look, we were going to have an election nine months after that. I feel a little differently about the the second one, where I think if you know if the Democratic majority in the House had drafted the articles of impeachment a little bit better and had moved a little more expeditiously, I think you know history might have worked out a little bit in, in a different way. Um, but look, I think he 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 should be on the ballot if he is the Republican nominee, which he appears you know very well on on track to be at this point. Um, and I don't think you know at, at a time where I, I think that the Supreme Court, you know, again, Roberts is worried about the legitimacy of the court is a big part of his sort of project, so to speak, as the chief justice. It doesn't seem like that the Democrats in the main have a lot like invested in this case. Again, not being one, it's harder to say, but, you know, it's not like um, 
it's not you know quite as much as with the you know the federal you know some of the federal charges um you know that you had a few months ago you know the the democratic secretary of state in michigan basically being like i it's not my job to get in the middle of of this kind of thing it really is you know sort of for the, the voters to decide and um you know i i, I appreciate well, i guess well, the argument that some of the people that are making that's, that that want to do this to, to disqualify i think it's wrong and i also think it's going it would create way more civic damage than they would purport to undo yeah i, I mean the the thing is that you know for anybody with a political uh brain in their head they understand that this would lead to escalatory responses and that's something that the justices absolutely uh, put forward, you know, right on the table, just, uh, you know, including Chief Justice Roberts, you know, saying, you know, what, what isn't this going to lead to this situation where you just have more and more states in a domino effect, canceling out, you know, major party candidates. And that's clearly not something that's consistent with allowing, you know, democracy to work and people to select uh, the candidates that they have. The other thing, the other question <laughs> I was, I had to laugh when uh, Alito put this forward because they were dealing a lot in hypotheticals. And, uh, um, and, and getting rather persnickety when uh, the gentleman arguing for Colorado was trying to change their hypotheticals in response. It was very uh, amusing. It was like being in a class with them. Uh, but Alito put forward the question, it, you know, theoretically, let's say that there was a nation that has spent a very long time describing itself as a fundamental enemy of the United States, you know, and uh, and called for its destruction and, and, you know, even backed uh, and given money to people who've killed Americans, you know, uh, in its interest. Uh, and then the president of the United States deemed it wise to uh, release an enormous amount of money toward that nation. <laughs> Could they then be described as having given aid and comfort to the enemy, you know, which is obviously, a, you know, an offense that would uh, potentially even rise to be considering an, an insurrectionist act. And then the, the whole, like, I, I, if I had been in the court, I would have uh, broken, I would have absolutely laughed. <laughs> so, um, yeah. the, well, only if the president doesn't have immunity, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, <laughs> so these questions, these questions uh, interlock. So you know, look, it's, that, what, can, there, there was one other point that I thought that was kind of interesting, just as a matter of like, you talk about the, the unique question of like officers and the definitions involved. One thing that really they seem to be hung up on is the idea that uh, that Trump essentially, under their argument, uh, became ineligible to hold office on January sixth. Like regardless of anything else that happened, he became you know it, it's it's self enforceable. He became ineligible in the same way that someone who isn't old enough is ineligible or anything like that. It's just automatic. How? How would you possibly enforce that mechanism? And one of the questions that I believe uh, it might might have come from Gorsuch, uh, might have come from someone else, uh, uh, maybe Roberts, uh, that uh, was put to him was, you know, does that give authority to, all, you know, other officers to just defy him? Does the military just have to? Do they stop listening to the president? You know, do they? And there, yeah. you get you open up this just like whole, you know, thing of can of worms by going down this route and uh and i think that that's something that you know democrats the democrats who have been pushing this uh and they are very much the eli mistel you know msnbc legal commentary th uh thread 
of people who've been around and and you know have always been on one side of every argument for the last eight years uh, about him uh that that set i think is just so fundamentally unserious that they just don't care no they don't care and they want the immediate satisfaction the feel-good chemicals of you know a win against trump in this way but this i mean the self-executing bit you know that's that's what all of this turns on but look notice like so anecdote right my virginia driver's license has for six years now had a typo on it that says i'm six foot eleven now sometimes i wish i was six foot eleven but i'm actually six foot one right so they they they, they threw an extra one on there now if if there was a matter of law or eligibility that turned on my height I could hand my driver's license to a clerk. The clerk could say, sorry, you're too tall. You're too tall for this office. You're disqualified. I would have recourse. I could take yeah. them to court. I could, you know, I could say it's a typo. Take out a tape measure. You know, I'm six foot one, maybe six foot one and a half on a good day. Right. So it same thing applies here. Even if Trump became metaphysically ineligible, as it were, right? And even if a, a clerk has the power to, you know, with their an election official has the power with their intellect to 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 acknowledge this metaphysical fact that Trump is now ineligible. You know, due process means that there that he he can and does have recourse. So you can say, well, on what basis am I ineligible? And that and then the conversation goes back to just exactly the sort of thing I was talking about. Like, wouldn't you like to have a conviction in a court of law that establishes a set of facts determined by a jury of his peers, you know, that concludes something in the neighborhood of, yes, he engaged in insurrection? I mean, you could even have an O.J. Simpson standard, right? Like he was not found guilty criminally of murder, but according to a court, he was responsible for the deaths of Nicole Simpson and Ron Goldman, right? He was found civilly liable for their deaths. So if you want, even if you want to say, okay, Trump got sued for, you know, something in the neighborhood of those crimes and was found, you know, responsible for them, then they'd have a much better, a much better case. I mean, don't forget, we live in a country where, and I disagree with this. This is one of my most libertarian positions. We live in a country where if you go to jail, you can have your franchise taken for life. You can be ineligible to vote for life. So it's not it's not ridiculous to think that we could have much looser standards for who could be on a ballot. It could be the case that if I ever stole a car, I can't run for president of the United States in Colorado. I think that would be totally constitutional. You know, um, may, you know, maybe not. Maybe there's a federal state office distinction. Again, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but it's not like we don't have lower standards for these sorts of things. The difference is in all of those cases, there is some due process of law that establishes those facts. But I guess my question with that, and, and again, sort of, and I am not a, uh, you know, uh, a, a scholar of the postbellum era and its intersection with, you know, American constitutional law, but it, it seems hard to believe that, you know, every single, you know, officer or soldier in the Confederacy had some sort of trial, right? That, uh, that they were, and I'm making a macro, I'm not just making this case for, for Trump's actions, but where it was, you know, the these guys were confederates that probably would have said you know they are confederate soldiers i think you know what happened with trump is is much more of a edge case that i don't find terribly i don't find the colorado argument terribly compelling um right but so the the parallel there though john and i know we didn't want to get into a, a rabbit hole here but the parallel there is if trump had said had signed a piece of paper accepting a commission in the you know maga states of america to do 
to overturn the the U.S. Ele- you know presidential election, then I would I would probably say that the the clerk was within his or her rights to point to that piece of paper and say that this guy engaged in an insurrection. And in the case of Confederate officers, that's exactly what they did, right? They said, you know, they were given commissions in a hostile, illegitimate, illegal foreign government, right? A rebellious government, depending on your view of, of what the Confederacy was. But in either case, it obtains, you know, so those guys were ineligible by their own avowals. And there absolutely was a paper trail. Like not everything has to be a jury trial, but there has to be something more than I watched CNN on January 6th. Trump's ineligible. Um, and I think that's well, fair, I mean, but I mean, we've also seen that yeah. he's had recourse through through the courts to this and that he's, you know, I, I think we probably all agree is going to be and should be on the ballot. The So yeah. let me ask you this broader political question before we move off, because I, I have one more thing to ask you about before we wrap things up. If uh, If we step back from this and analyze it, not from a legal perspective, but from a political perspective and the reaction of Americans to this. It has been of great help to Donald Trump to this point to have the level of lawfare attacks go after him that has ensured his, uh, you know, he, he basically jumped from the low 40s to the high 50s within the Republican uh, primary electorate uh, and stayed there and only grew. So that's had its positive function for him to this point. Now my question becomes, as we move into the general election period, that does seem to me to be something that I'm curious about at what point where that stops helping him. uh, Or if victory, meaning from his perspective, vindication, in a case like this, in front of the Supreme Court, actually rebounds pretty negatively against the Democrats, meaning they tried to take me off the ballot. They didn't even want you to be able to vote for me. And, you know, again, as we've discussed before, there is a whole horde of, of you know, from my perspective, uh, uh, Trump-Biden voters who are out there who don't like this. Um, and and people like to pretend that they don't exist, but there are a lot of people who voted against Hillary Clinton and then voted for Joe Biden because they changed their minds about what they wanted and they weren't happy after four years or they just stayed home. Uh, and so I think that that population, to me, has always been the risk factor for when Democrats went down this road of saying, we don't think you should even be able to vote for him again, uh, that there was a risk factor there for them, for them. Does this, assuming that the court does rule the way that they seem to be inclined to from the oral arguments, does that hurt Democrats? I'm skeptical in this instance, just because I don't think that they have been nearly as closely tied uh, to this sort of, you know, the national Democratic class in the way that they have been to, you know, the Jack Smith prosecution. Um you know, again, this was a this was ended up being a project of the state. And you even look in Maine where this that's, has happened. That's, that's fair, I think. Yes. And, and do you, the, where you've had, you know, Jared Golden, you know, the, one of the Democratic members of Congress up there that's like, look, I, I don't like Trump, but like, I think that, you know, the Maine Secretary of State or whoever sort of, you know, was pursuing this up there was out of line on this. So I, I think that there has been an effort to create distance. You don't see... Um, you know, you, know, you don't see Hakeem Jeffries like jumping all over this or trying to push this. Like, I think there's been, you know, a little bit of di- you know distance on this. Um, so I, I don't, I don't think this one. And you know, I, I think a you know a, f- a friend of the pod. You know, I know we got an email 
the other day that it's like in some ways like the legal stuff may actually be helpful to Trump because him focusing on the legal stuff and not doing whatever it is that he would do on you know truth or twitter like it's kept that him, was my next question <laughs> yeah then it's kept him kind of slightly more constrained so i mean i think as long as he has some sort of boundaries that he will so, still you know cool so basically, basically just to rehash it so the question is sort of so does the lawfare hurt democrats you're saying john i think you know at, at least in the instance of this case you know possibly no uh but then the next question obviously is does it actually help trump by keeping him distracted from screwing up his election <laughs> uh, chances uh, as much as he possibly could if left to his own devices. I think the answer to that is, is, is I don't want to say absolutely yes, but I think it is far more likely than not that it is. It is, I mean, obviously it's unhelpful from a financial standpoint that, you know, RNC dollars basically just go back out to Trump's lawyers. But when, when candidate, candidate management is probably the biggest part of this, like, you know, at the margin, it's it's probably better for him to be, you know, talking about this kind of stuff or, you know, but still having some some kind of constraint than it is for him to just go, you know, back to, you know, full, you know, full Trump circa, you know, 2016, 2017. You know, I, I said the other day on uh, Twitter that, you know, all the polls that show Biden behind five or six points. And we've talked around this issue a lot here, but all the polls that show Biden behind, to me, they basically say, we don't like Joe Biden. He's old. We wish he weren't running. We want a different choice. We're not happy uh, in our lives right now, whether that's for inflation reasons, economic reasons, whether it's because we're pissed off about Israel, Palestine, whatever it is. That's what those polls say. I think the irony is that tells me very little about his chances of winning in 2024. And, you know, I think that's why those polls, those polls showing Biden behind are should be red alerts for the for the DNC and for Democrats and for the White House. They absolutely should be. But I don't think that they're determinative for the reasons I just said. And that connects up with your your question, Ben. I think so long as this election is going to be a referendum on Joe Biden, and that's what it is. Um, uh, ultimately, every incumbency is 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 you know reelect is about that. So long as that's what the election is about, then. Um, you know, keeping Trump out of his own way will have some marginal benefit in allowing voters' minds to focus on that and not on what the alternative is. So I, I, I guess there's a little something to that. But I would only push back on the premise of our of our the friend of the pod who sent that email in in a kind of narrow way, which is to say that you know Trump is capable of saying really dumb shit about his own legal cases as well. It doesn't you know it you know and, and alienating stuff like. For instance, the, the immunity stuff. I mean, the immunity stuff, the case he's making there. Now, I don't know if voters are paying really close attention, but that applies to any of that stuff. So, so the, the case he's making on, on the question of presidential immunity is every bit as outrageous as anything he might be saying about some policy that doesn't directly bear on his own legal issues. So he's still capable of saying dumb stuff um, and and takes the affords himself of that opportunity. You know, when whenever he can. Now, just a, one little quick thing on whether the the lawfare helps or hurts Democrats. You know, the the, the I think the the reason it doesn't really matter is because Trump is as legitimate and legitimized as he is ever going to be. I do think that there were moments, both in 2015, 2016, and then again after January 6th, where there were inflection points where Republican officialdom. Um, had more of an opportunity to prevent 
um, to to change to change the way that Trump was was perceived by uh, the electorate. And and you know it, it, in 2016 it was the Christie endorsement was a big one. Um, and 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 after January 6th, I think Josh Hawley's speech on the Senate floor. I, I go back to that one a lot. I think was a big moment, and it sent a signal to a lot of other senators, especially, but members of Congress, Republican officials. And I think, you know, those things haven't gone the way that they did. Trump is a legitimate, you know, he's an ex-president. You don't get more legitimate than that. Sir, four years as president of the United States. I think that is as baked in as it possibly could be. And there's no undoing it and there's no changing it. The, the vast majority of potential Republican voters think that there's absolutely nothing out of the ordinary about voting for Donald Trump to be president of the United States. So I'm not sure how much room there is for the legal stuff to, to change that. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I just want to uh, uh, close out with this. Um, we uh, we are going to see uh, uh, a, a special election uh, in the race to replace George Santos uh, next week uh, before we talk again. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, mostly going to be, it looks like, you know, on sort of the national topics, you know, basically, you know, uh, border issues, uh, immigration fight, you know, the economy, uh, maybe some foreign policy stuff. Obviously, he, Santos kind of snuck in uh, when he got in, uh, in lots of different ways. Uh, and now you have, uh, a you know, pretty expensive uh, race happening there that a lot of people will look at as, as tea leaves uh, and, you know, just opinions on any kind of lessons that you can take away uh, from the what comes out of this special election uh, that uh, it, for uh, to replace Santos in New York's third. I think you have yeah, to the... start with the disclaimer that all special elections are special is they all have a uniquely weird set of circumstances. You string some of them together and, you know, you can begin to maybe parse things out. Uh, and I know I feel like I bring him up every week, but I think, you know, Nate Kahn at the, uh, you know, the New York Times is, you know, pretty good observer and pretty good at just sticking with the analytics on things. And it seems like this cycle, um, you know, Democrats have had, have run a little bit of a, a head, but a lot of that is because they seem to be more energized and also because, you know, the, the Trump sort of electoral bargain as we traded, you know, some high propensity voters for lower propensity voters that will come out for presidential, but may not come out for, you know, just a congressional year or, you know, for a special election. So and also remember that this is a Democrat plus three seat, you know, right. That this was, you know, wasn't a huge upset for, for Santos to win, but it was, uh, you know, but it was enough that it was not, you know, the D triple C I don't think was paying as much attention there relative to other seats that they were concerned about. Um, but in as much as the race is being nationalized around the immigration issue, which it, it seems to be in, in Tom Swazi, the former Democratic congressman, seems to be trying to like run away from the White House on this. Um, you know, I, I think it's something where, you know, if, if the Republican wins, you know, I think you may see, you know, to sort of borrow from, you know, Axelrod and some of those guys, probably more Democratic bedwetting on this. But it will be interesting, you know, th does Biden tack a little bit more on on immigration, because it seems like that's really turning into a potentially a real political uh, Achilles heel for him. And, you know, the, if, and as much as that race, immigration is going to be a, a central issue, uh, you know, there, there could be signals there. But, you know, if, if Thomas Wazi wins by one or two points, I don't think you can take much away other than that's probably naturally where that district kind of lives. And, um, 
you know, that it's, it's going to be a you know very competitive election cycle. You know, one thing I would disagree with there, John, is, is that, you know, Matt Gates said the other day that, that the, the, the reason the Mayorkas vote failed and that, and, and the biggest mistake the house leadership has made in, in, in the whole conduct of that was expelling Santos. And so if a Democrat wins that seat, I, I think absolutely the Gates wing of, of, the Republican caucus is go, the lesson they're going to draw from that is that you shouldn't have expelled a criminal liar fraud from the caucus because you have such a razor thin majority. Um, so I do think that they will, you know, that, that, that will be something that comes out of that. But I did on the broader dynamics of the race and special elections being special. I saw some the other day, the other day too, that I thought was very funny. I'll, I'll butcher it, but but the the gist of it was, you know, our politics is like this now, um, you know, uh, <laughs> Republicans lose a special election for dog catcher in Hitlerville, Montana, right? Trump loses six lawsuits. Johnson loses forty procedural votes in one day. New poll shows Biden behind by seven, right? So we're in we're in a very weird spot where almost none of the other things that happen, including to Trump himself, but to the GOP in Congress, but to GOP state party apparatuses, which are a bleeping mess, you know, to state elected officials, to, you know, previously Republican strongholds like a Georgia or a Texas or, you know, or Arizona, none of the things that happen in any of those other spheres of American political life seem to have any effect on Trump versus Biden polls. So I, yeah, I just think the lesson is you can't draw any lessons. All right, gentlemen. Well, I'm off to uh, just have a conversation with Francois Biderand and uh, Helmut Cole about what they thought that the thought of today's uh, Supreme court performances. I'll be sure to get back to you on what they have to say. You have been listening to Thunderdome brought to you by the spectator. You can go to our site, the spectator.com sign up for subscription and for all of our newsletters uh, for Dan, for John, Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back soon with more on this crazy 2024 election.